This is London Real. I am Brian Rose. My guest today is Peter Diamandis, the entrepreneur, philanthropist, author, and world-renowned speaker. You are the founder of Singularity University, the XPRIZE Foundation, and Bold Capital Partners, a $250 million venture fund investing in exponential technologies. You started over 20 companies, written three New York Times bestselling books, and were named one of the world's 50 greatest leaders by Fortune magazine. Your latest book, Exponential Organizations 2.0, the new playbook for 10x growth and impact, looks at how businesses can grow exponentially by leveraging technology, innovation, and creativity. You believe there will be two kinds of companies at the end of this decade, those that are fully utilizing AI and those that are out of business. Ultimately, you think AI will create an extraordinary future where our greatest dreams can come true. Peter, welcome to London Real. Thank you, Brian. Uh, appreciate the invitation. And this is one of the most incredible times to be alive. Every day I pinch myself at what I'm reading, what I'm seeing. Uh, you know, we're living in the midst of a, of a science fiction movie in one sense. Uh, another sense, we're living at the, I call the 99th level of the gameplay, right? The boss level for those who are gamers. Uh, and it's tough to predict where things are going. And we can talk about that, but the convergence of these exponential technologies are allowing entrepreneurs to reinvent the future every single day. Yeah, and we have a lot of entrepreneurs watching. I'm one, you're one. So I really want to get into exactly what you put out in the book. You know, I had my chat GPT moment like everybody else did. And, uh, you know, we both spent time at MIT, so we were technical, but I had never gone that deep into AI. And of course I did afterwards. So the last six months, I've used my platform to educate myself. I've had Mo Gowdit on the show. I know you've spoken to him, former Google. Mo, yeah. yep. I actually had Mo four years ago when he came, or five years ago when he came with his um, happiness book. So I already knew Mo yes. and I, I listened to his book um, and then I got him back on. I've had Professor Max Tegmark of MIT, uh, Professor Hugo de Garris, who wrote that book, The Art Elect War, and of course, Dr. Ben Gertzel on the show. We're also investing about a million dollars into his new AI company. Peter, you've been talking about singularity for decades. I was just curious, why write your book now? And how did the ChatGPT moment change your view of the future? So I wrote a book with my writing partner, Stephen Kotler. We'd written uh, Abundance, Bold. And our third book was uh, The Future is Faster Than You Think. That came out in uh, 2019, just before the pandemic hit, and it was a look at how this decade everything is accelerating and that the speed at which technology is accelerating is itself accelerating. All these things are coming together, right? Just to take a second and paint that acceleration of the acceleration. First of all, we've got more capital than ever before, right? Uh, deployed more democratically, uh, globally we have the fact that the tech is becoming cheaper. So your ability per dollar to get access to compute or memory or per dollar to get access to genome sequencing is skyrocketing, not, not just 10X or 100X, we're talking you know, a million X, a billion X over it was 20 years ago. So for every dollar available, and there's more of that, there's more capability of technology. We then have more individuals, more brilliant minds being connected globally around the world. It used to be the people that were, you know, in our classes at MIT, or we're in our city, or we happen to know through our industry. Now you have access to the most brilliant minds around the planet instantly for free, right? So there's more intellectual capability and more money and more money doing more things with it. 
And then you add uh, this incredible sense of urgency, this what I call a massive transformative purpose. It's throwing fuel on the fire. So all these things are accelerating the rate of the acceleration we're seeing. And one of the things I, I wrote about in Exponential Organizations 2.0 with Salim Ismail is that we're going to see more progress in the decade ahead than we have in the entire past century. And so when you look at this incredible speed, it is blinding. And I mean, I was just, as we were just saying a few minutes before we hopped on this program, I was at MIT this past week visiting uh, some dear friends on a new company, a new venture studio I'm creating there. Uh, and I was talking to one friend about how a new generation of technologies are coming out that will displace uh, these generative transformer models, these, uh, you know, these GPT models, and will be a hundred or a thousand times better than them. And then you know, literally not an hour goes by when another person saying, oh yeah, I've heard about those approaches, but this is going to blow that one out of the water. So it's, it's this near the curve and agility and the ability to understand the fundamental sort of uh, first principle thinking uh, that's going to be key, but we're going to see disruption after disruption after disruption. And how do you leverage that? The way I describe it, Brian, is how do you surf on top of the, on top of the tsunami of change instead of getting crushed by it? So you know that can either generate a sense of anxiety in people when I speak about this, or like awe and excitement, like amazing, like I'm going to let go of that and I'm going to start on this next this next stream. I mean, my my GPT moment, probably uh, prior to ChatGPT, but then definitely excelled by by uh, by G by ChatGPT, um, was was really um, the recognition that the Turing test had been completed, and that uh, we had just moved the goal line. Um, in fact, another conversation I had on my tea this week was in like you know when are we going to see AGI? And one of the guys I was there with, who's extraordinarily brilliant, has multiple PhDs. Um, he says, listen, we have AGI. It came in 2020. Uh, I was like, what? He goes, yeah, it came with uh, with with uh, the release of GPT-3. I'm clear about that, is, is his opinion. Um, and it will become evident by 2025. So what does it mean to the world, everybody listening here, if in fact we have artificial general intelligence Right. We know there's this concept of narrow intelligence, and this is deep blue winning chess. This is even, um, you know, uh, even uh, deep minds approaches to uh, protein sequencing or playing Go. These are narrow AIs that are able to solve this particular problem. Artificial general intelligence is an AI that you can ask it to do anything, and it's generalized sufficiently. Um, but the interesting thing is, okay, if in fact we have it by 2025, you know, Ray Kurzweil, who's a dear friend, my mentor, uh, we've started companies together. We start Singularity University together. Ray's prediction is that we have, well, you know, his prediction has been that by 2029, we'll have human level AI. Um, and everybody used to think he's super, op, you know, way ahead and optimistic. And no, it's 50 years later, 100 years later. Now people have all honed in on, yes, by 2029, we're likely to have AI. And many individuals, you know, Elon included, are projecting, no, it's likely 2025. 
So regardless if it's 25 or 29, it's here, it's this decade. So what are you gonna do? How are you gonna prepare for it? Um, it changes everything, changes everything. You know, I've had people on both sides, Peter, some that say, well, the, the Mark Andreessen viewpoint that <clears throat> look, people always worry that technology replaces jobs and then it creates the jobs. And then I've had people on the other side that say, look, this is completely different. And, you know, Goldman Sachs came out really and said 300 million jobs are in jeopardy because of AI. You know, where do you stand? Because, yeah, there's a lot of anxiety in the, in the public. And when I first went down this route, I went to some dark places as well. I have two young boys. They're six or seven years old. And I'm thinking about their teenage years, Peter. And I'm thinking they will have teenage years ex ex never experienced in 200,000 years of human history. Theirs will be so yeah. different than anything else. And so I obviously am emotionally involved. But... What do you say about those those two sides that one say it will help us and one say it will replace us? So let's drill down. I'm a dad of two 12-year-old boys, fraternal twins, um, and I think about the same thing. I'm clear that their middle school and high school will not prepare them for the road ahead and that school needs to be reinvented. So I've been spending a lot of time. I put out, a, I put out two blogs a week um at diamandis.com and i just wrote one on the future of reinventing high school i'll probably have to do one on on the future of reinventing college if college sure we're going to be changing that significantly um there are utopian dystopian both are true they're not exclusive from each other uh and let me let me break that down first of all uh, do i believe we're going to have issues yes uh, do I believe that the world is going to be extraordinary in the next 20, 30, 40 years? Yes. So how do I hold those two resonant in my mind? I, I do it by looking back at the last century. I think very few people would argue that between 1900 and 2023, that the world's gotten extraordinarily better, right? Uh, from a, from a uh, uh, living standards standpoint. But even if you believe that during the past 123 years there i actually looked at this for my new book i'm writing the next iteration of my first book abundance um over the last 123 years there have been 268 million deaths due to war and pestilence and famine right so we've had this incredible period of hardship but yet still the world has gotten better at an extraordinary rate over the last 123 years so we're we gonna have ups and downs are we going to have issues? Yes. Will the world get extraordinarily better in the process? Yes. So let's break AI down into three categories. So AI today, uh, I would say, is incredible. It's the equivalent to that uh, newborn child that you're cuddling and holding and is all love. And, you know, if it's not screaming in the middle of the night, it's, it's you know, it's, it's cuddly and, and fun. And we can use ChatGPT and we can use stability and stable diffusion, all those things, and have fun with them. And they're causing more upside than disruption. So that's phase one. Um, and I think if we were to stop development of AI today, it would be incredibly useful for the world. Still, one of the most useful tools ever. But then we're going to enter phase two and phase three. Uh, phase two is the next one to 10 years. And this is the phase during which AI starts to become disruptive. What I mean by that? Well, we have the U.S. elections coming up and there's no question um, that in the U.S. elections, we're going to start to see 
generative AI in the form of deep fakes and disruptions causing turmoil. Uh, we're going to see loss of jobs. Uh, I think the loss of jobs issue isn't going to be as big as people uh, think. It's going to be definitely punctuating certain careers and jobs. I think we're going to have AI co-pilots. Uh, as a physician, you're not going to be diagnosing on your own. It's going to become malpractice to diagnose without having AI in the loop. And there's definitive good reasons for that. As a CEO, as a politician, as a lawyer, as an artist, as a writer, you're going to have your AI co-pilot supporting you. And we have that already to some degree. Um, and they're going to be those jobs completely replaced by AI. But there will be upskilling opportunities. Uh, and so I think the job market will take care of itself. I think we're going to have universal, universal basic income, right? Uh, UBI, where we tax robots, we tax the AIs that are displacing jobs, and we distribute that capital to individuals, and we allow those individuals to upskill themselves, educate themselves uh, in, in, uh, with that capital. Uh, there'll be terrorism. Um, we will see the first Wall Street servers hacked by AIs or the first power plants, and there will be concern that comes from that. And we have to learn how to navigate that. It's going to be like a pandemic. And despite those negative things, the ability for AI to do the utopian things, help us once and for all enable cheap and available and plentiful safe fusion uh, to allow us to slay all diseases, uh, to extend the healthy human lifespan, to provide every child on the planet the best teacher possible. Uh, this is from the young uh, ladies illustrates uh, prim primer from uh, from Diamond Age, right? Neil Stevenson's work, uh, but an AI that knows your child's favorite color, sports car, uh, sports team, you know, knows what they do know, what they don't know, and and provides them a personalized education like you could not buy, right? And as we enter the virtual world, and AI and and VR and the metaverse combine and provide this immersive educational experience that is um, is the best way for uh, a human to learn from an experiential standpoint, not reading words on a page. Uh, AI is going to become your diagnostician and your surgeon. And all these things will trend, will tend towards a zero cost, right? They mar It's a marginal cost for the best education, best health. These things are coming. Now, the third phase of AI is uh, what we might call the artificial superintelligence, right? This is where AI now has become not 10x smarter than humans, but a billion fold smarter than humans. And what happens when we have that level of AI on the planet, you know, and from billions to trillions, and there's no limitation. Limitation is energy and compute. But let's not go down that rabbit hole. Um, the the question is, will that AI be dystopian? Will it be the Terminator, uh, you know, Skynet? Or will it be a benevolent um, entity supporting humanity, wanting us to be our best? And I think that's where the conversation is most important. I personally believe that the more intelligent a entity is, uh, the more pro-life, and pro-human life, uh, pro-abundance, it will be. 
Uh, I think there's no reason for uh, AI to, you know, crush humans, right? There's an infinite number of resources accessible. You know, if you're a movie fan, uh, you on one end of the spectrum, there is Skynet and the Terminator. On the other end is her, um, where in this movie, when the AI becomes super intelligent and basically gets bored of humans, it leaves and goes off to some other star system. And I think that's more likely. There's no reason. We are a crumb in a supermarket filled with resources in our universe, right? The Earth is a beautiful gem, but it's by no means unique in its, in its uh, availability of uh, atomic matter and energy. So our job today, and these are conversations, so I do my podcast, Moonshots, and I've just been like you, uh, Mo Godot is a is a friend, and I love his thinking. And we're spending a lot of time together, focused on the alignment problem. And then Imad Mustak, the CEO of uh, Stability AI, um, and others, we've been having this conversation: How do you ensure that AI, the super intelligent AI, is aligned with us? Um, Mo's framework, uh, which he writes in his incredible book, Scary Smart, is probably one of the best. He says, you know we are giving birth to a new species, a new intelligence uh, in AI. Uh, and he says, imagine, um, and I'm sure you've had, they had this conversation um, on, on London Real, when, when Superman landed on planet Earth and he landed in Kansas and meant the Kent, you know, was brought up by the Kent family, this, this family of loving individuals with good morals and ethics, he turned into a superhero. If he had landed in the Bronx in uh, a drug lord's den, um, he would have probably become a super villain. So it's your early days of learning. So as we are the parents of these generative AI models, what are we teaching these AIs? How do we give them uh, the the nutrition, the nutrients uh, to be loving, kind, moral, ethical, um, uh, uh, super uh, AIs that will be more the positive uh, impact on humanity. So these are the conversations I think about all the time uh, as a dad of 12 year olds and as someone who's studying and writing and investing heavily in the future. Peter, I'm just kind of curious, what has surprised you about the conversations you've had in the last three months with, with, with people about AI, whether it's politicians or fellow MIT, MIT years or business people, you know, maybe some things that you thought that you would agree on and maybe some things you thought you would disagree on that didn't happen. I think what surprised me is how much ChatGPT and its follow-ons have surprised the creators of ChatGPT. The emergent properties were not intuitively obvious when it was being built, right? That is fascinating. You imagine as a coder, right? And I've been a computer coder all my life, not recently in the last decade, but you know, I was there coding in hexadecimal on, uh, on, on 6502 microprocessors in the early days. These computers would do what you told them to do uh, because it was very much hardwired if A, do, do, do this, if B, do this. But that's not how these, you know, these neural nets are working and especially not how these large language models are working. Um, they're exhibiting, exhibiting properties that were like, huh, interesting, where did that come from? And that's surprising. What's also surprising me and surprising others is what's coming next, that 
uh, there's a lot of a lot of improvement coming and it's not linear it is continuing to be exponential um and so i just met this one company uh that i'm meeting with the the founders tomorrow because i'm so blown away by their technology that looks to be a hundred or a thousand fold more efficient on many different levels than uh than open ai's gpt4 so wow what does that mean and then being told by another friend huh well actually there's stuff that's going to be even blow that out of the water so the speed is incredible um i think what surprised me as well is how this isn't front and center conversation uh where it needs to be uh in the boardroom um you know i'm on stages around the world and i'm like you know wake up people you have to understand that this is an extraordinary time uh and the tools and how you think about this and how do you prepare for it and how you reinvent your your business um so you know this is what i spend a lot of my time uh thinking through uh so anyway a lot of those a lot of the surprising me. I mean, you know, the, the White House obviously, you know, summoned the leaders there. I think they just came up with an agreement. You know, the Senate had obviously, you know, uh, Sam there and a few people talking about it. You know, all, a lot of the corporations are talking about it, but in your mind, they're not, they're not really engaging or seeing how fast and how accelerating this and how disruptive this would be? Yeah, I think this needs to be an ever-present uh, conversation uh, of you know increasing percentage of one's time because the impact is disproportionate to everything else uh, talk about not only the elections but the global economy right um, there is whenever we have a revolution and this will be a revolution a revolution economic revolution a societal revolution a workforce revolution an intellectual revolution uh, it generates turbulent flow um, and then it settles out into a new capability we saw this with every the industrial revolution uh, and we've seen this with the early computer revolution we've seen it over and over again and the challenges that or the advantage of previous revolutions are that they took place over uh, centuries or decades or years versus months and our systems of governance uh, and we humans want stability uh, you know humans like waking up in the morning and knowing that the world was exactly the way it was when they went to sleep last night no matter how bad the world was we don't like uh, we don't like change because uh, you have no idea whether it's going to be positive or negative for you and this is going to be an impulse right a, a high uh, a force per unit time change uh, that is going to shake people and we could promise everybody listen it's going to be amazing let me paint for you where it's going right i know that you're not going to be you know we're demonetizing everything but your healthcare is going to be free and your education is going to be free and the healthcare and education is going to be a thousand times better than what you had before and we're going to see, uh, you know, energy is going to be a hundred times cheaper and all of that. You can paint the most glorious picture of the future, but tomorrow when there's disruption in your, in your job, in your company, in your city, in your country, you can't see that future. And so this is 
you know, I'm, I am the person where the glass is not half full, glass is overflowing, but I can understand uh, how this is going to make people feel in the future. For me, a lot of the work that I'm doing right now, you know, I mentor uh, 360 uh, entrepreneurs and CEOs at my Abundance 360 program. And my job every year, we hold it in March in, in LA, is to say, this is what just happened in the past year. Let me contextualize what just happened. And let me show you where things are going for the next two to three years. And sort of give you sort of a roadmap ahead. Because if we have a roadmap, if we understand what's coming, we have a chance to to uh, get ready for it. You know, I started running this uh, Abundance 360 program uh, 11 years ago and committed to running it for 25 years because I said, I'm going to mentor and support these CEOs um, between now and through the singularity, right? And I can tell you that it's becoming harder and harder for me to really uh, keep up. I am by bringing amazing people together, but so much is happening uh, during the course of a year and the time horizon, the predictable time horizon of what is likely to hit. And, and you know, it used to be I could, I had a good view of where things were going to be in 10 years um, and definitely five. And now, you know, three to five is getting kind of shaky. Yeah, I think you said you had, you had asked Imad, uh, like how far out can you see? And he was just like two years, three years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. There, there's this famous book called Who Moved My Cheese? I don't know if you've ever read it. It's a short book. I remember the title, yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, I, I kind of, I need to reread it, but the summary is this, I think there's two mice and they go to their same place every day and there's their cheese and then one day the cheese ends it there. And I think one mice, one mouse freaks out and spends all his time complaining that his cheese isn't there and the other one, realizes that this is gonna happen regularly and I gotta get into the mindset of being able to look for new cheese or maybe not worry <laughs> about cheese anymore or who knows, maybe get the AI to find my cheese. And it's about the mindset. And I think you said this before, Peter, that that mindset, maybe that's that growth mindset, is probably the most important asset you can have going into this future, um, yeah. is how you can condition your mind. Because like you said, we are gonna be hit like a, a, like a boxer hits someone with a 10 punch combo with all of these crazy changes and it's gonna happen probably starting daily soon. So how can people think about changing their mindset? Cause that's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, yeah so I teach that. I mean, that's the core of what I, I teach uh, at Abundance 360. Uh, I've got three books in production right now. One is Abundance, uh, Scaling abundance is a follow-on to my original book, Abundance, from 12 years ago, because the story has gotten so much better. And abundance is a mindset. Um, and then there's another one on mindset mastery. And let me give the, for those who haven't thought about it, let me take a second here. If you ask yourself the question, you know, what made the most extraordinary leaders on the planet successful? Whoever they are, Mahatma Gandhi, um, you know, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, you know, name your favorite uh, leader. And you said, okay, was it the money they had that made them successful? Was it the friends they had? Was it the tech they had? Or was it the mindset they had? And I think, and, you know, on stages where I ask people or on Twitter where I poll people, it's like 99% say, yeah, it's the mindset, right? Um, and if you took away everything from them, but, you know, Martin Luther King maintained his mindset, he would gain back 
the leading power that he had. Uh, and I think that's true. And, and during all of my life of mentoring under people and learning from extraordinary individuals, it is all about mindset. So if mindset is the key element, my next question to those watching, listening is, okay, what mindset do you have? Um, and where did you get it? And what mindset do you need for the decade ahead? And so if you stop and, and, and ponder that question, you realize that shaping your mindset is fundamentally critical. All right, next point, what is a mindset? Well, it turns out, you know, we've been talking about AI and that deep learning is these neural nets in, in computer instantiation on NVIDIA's chips. And you train a neural net by showing it data after data after data. If you want to train a neural net to, you know, be able to uh, see a, a mouse or cheese or a cat, you show it photos of that over and over and over again, and it starts to learn and recognize the, you know, the ears, the tail, the, you know, whiskers, all of those elements and says, okay, that's what makes a cat. And it can then identify a cat in all its different variations. Well, we are constantly training our neural nets by the stuff that we watch, we read, who we hang out with, the conversations we have. And so, like I say, if you're watching CNN, which I call the crisis news network, 24 hours a day, you're going to be in a state of fear and scarcity and anxiety because you're having every murder on the planet delivered to you over and over again. And in that case, you're just in a constant negative assault. And so you couldn't pay me enough money to watch, uh, to watch you know, the network news or to uh, read the newspapers. No, I want my neural net being wired by the news and information that's important to me, which are breakthroughs in science and AI and robotics and longevity and all of these fields um, so that I can uh, create within myself a set of mindsets. And the mindsets for me that are important are, first of all, a purpose-driven mindset, um, waking up every morning with clarity that your massive transformative purpose. And in our book, Exponential Organizations 2.0, we talk about that in, an MTP, a massive transformative purpose, is fundamental to every company that's really in exponential growth. Because in a world where there's an abundance of opportunities, if you try and go after everything, you're not going to succeed. But if you're clear about your MTP, you're going to focus on those opportunities aligned and it's going to work much better. And MTP helps you attract the best talent to you. So a purpose-driven mindset with an MTP is one, an abundance mindset. An abundance mindset really is saying, hey, listen, um, there's nothing truly scarce. Uh, you may think it's scarce. Our brains are wired for scarcity. But, you know, actually, technology is a, is a force, a tool that takes whatever was scarce and makes it abundant. So we used to kill whales to get whale oil. Then we ravaged the mountainsides to get coal. Now the Earth is bathed in 8,000 times more energy from the sun. And the energy isn't scarce. It's there, just not usable form. So how do we make it a usable Source. And the same is true example after example after example. And the next book, Abundance, um, Scaling Abundance, will tell that story. Um, the next mindset is an exponential mindset. And it's really understanding that we're living in a world that's very different than the world our brains evolved for, which were a local and linear world. 
And, you know, we're great at saying in 10 steps, I'll be there in 20 steps, I'll be there in 30 steps and across the street. But in 30 exponential steps, you're not across the street, you've gone a billion meters and you're circumvented the planet 26 times. And that's incredible. Uh, I teach a moonshot mindset, how to go 10x, maybe that's a growth mindset in other parlance, but going 10x bigger where the rest of the world is going 10%. And then one of my favorites where I spend a lot of my time is a longevity mindset, right? Having clarity that it's this decade, secondary to AI and quantum technologies coming, that we're gonna learn how to extend the healthy human lifespan by an additional at least 10 years, maybe 20 or 30 years. And during that extended period, we're gonna learn how to extend your life even more, right? So it's called longevity escape velocity. So longevity mindset, has you really focusing on what you drink, what you eat, getting exercise, sleep, to preserve your physical instantiation to intercept these breakthroughs coming your way. And that also benefits the mind as well as? Of course, yeah, yeah. your body, sure. You think in the next decade we'll get that 20 years? I do, uh, I fundamentally do. I'm getting ready to launch a major X prize in extended health span. And uh, uh, it's, I track this, I invest this, I have a $600 million fund, Bold Capital, that's investing two thirds of it into longevity and health. And uh, I run a longevity platinum trip every year where I go visit the top 50 scientists and, and researchers. And all of these things, I mean, I'm just, what I'm seeing is stunning um, across the board. So yes, um, you know, one of the things you know, I, I write about the fundamentals and the fundamentals uh, are still, Brian, you know, diet, what is it? Simple, lots of whole plants, zero sugar, minimize your sugar. Um, sugar is an inflammatory agent. It's got so much, the body was never designed to get as much sugar as we have. We didn't have sugar evolving in the Savannah's back in Africa. This thing called sugar is a relatively recent part of our diet. Um, sleep, eight hours of sleep, uh, seven minimum, fundamental, no questioned. If evolution could got rid of it, it would have a long time ago. Uh, exercise, number one thing you can do, and it's hard for people to budget in their time, but you gotta do it. It's exercise a little bit every day, right? At least 10,000 steps. It's getting some zone two exercise. It's getting uh, weight uh, resistive training. You know, I try and get into the gym with weights at least three times a week. Um, and then mindset is fundamental. You know, there's some incredible numbers that those individuals who are driven by purpose and who are optimistic have something like the 17% average longer lifespan. You know, mindset matters. Uh, the final thing, well, there's supplements and meds, but there's, you know, those are tuned to your genomics and tuned to your health status and what your desirements are. But the final thing is what I call not dying from something stupid. What do I mean by that? Um, we now have the ability to upload you every year, digitally upload you. And so one of the companies I'd started with Tony Robbins and, um, uh, and Mark Benioff and Bill Cap is a company called Fountain Life. We're in the U.S., we'll be in London sometime in the next few years, uh, and we'll be around the world. But these are facilities where you go at least once a year and you get uploaded full body MRI, right? MRI of your brain, your brain function, brain flow, blood flow, a coronary CT uh, analyzed using AI, a DEXA scan, 
hundred biomarkers. Um, I mean, it's 150 gigabytes of data about you. And what's your goal? Your goal is twofold. Is there anything going on inside your body right now you need to know about? Most of us are optimists about our health, but we have no idea what's going on inside you. You really don't. You have a better idea of what's going on inside in your car from your gauges, or if you're a pilot, what's going on inside your airplane than you do inside your body. And that's insane because we can know right now. And so out of the first few thousand uh, members who went <clears throat> through Fountain Life, uh, what we found was 2% have a cancer that they don't know about, they think they're healthy. 2.5% have an aneurysm they don't know about. 14.4% have something that is really uh, life-threatening that you take care of. And so this is about giving you the knowledge of what's going on today, but also at looking at the combination of your genomics and your physical and all of that is what are you likely to come down with and how do you prevent it? Right. So that's, uh, you know, that's, that's fountain life and what I call, you know, don't die from something stupid. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, so powerful. Uh, get to London please. So I can go. Um, you talk a lot about interfaces and you've talked about kind of the mosaic browser, um, and other pieces of technology over the years. Now we have this AI interface and of course, you know, Elon keeps teasing this Neuralink interface. Just your thoughts about how those could change the future. I mean, obviously the AI and the Neuralink. Yeah, so uh, I forget if it was in abundance or bold. I I wrote about something called a user interface moment. So I was interviewing Mark Andreessen on stage at Singularity University uh, years ago. And as he was telling the story of coming up with Mosaic, uh, the first internet browser that uh, became Internet Explorer and so forth. You know, we had ARPANET, which was uh, basically the U.S. defense industry uh, and government connecting all these supercomputer clusters at Stanford and MIT at Harvard and Washington, D.C., and then giving people who were not at that cluster, who were not physically in Cambridge, were not physically in Palo Alto, uh, access to these over a terminal. And that became ARPANET, the advanced, well, anyway, uh, it was a network of these computers. But they were hard to use. Um, they had arcane keystroke combinations and languages and so forth. And what Mark did was he put an, a layer on top of ARPANET that, uh, with HTML that allowed you to interface with this powerful underlying capability and it became uh, the browser and the browser on top of the internet. I said, huh, that's fascinating. And the number of users went from like 10 in the first year to you know 100,000 next year and 10 million in the next year. And it was incredible growth because it was such a powerful underlying capability and it was intuitively easier to use, not intuitively obvious to use. So that user interface moment uh, got me thinking about other user interface moments. Um, you know, the iPhone became another one with Steve Jobs and the App Store. Uh, and ChatGPT is most definitely a user interface moment, making it super simple to use um, the GPT uh, models that were trained up by OpenAI by just chatting with them. It's like amazing. If you take that a level higher, AI will be the ultimate user interface moment. What do I mean by that? We're all going to have a version of Jarvis. You know, Jarvis from Iron Man. I love that movie. 
And Jarvis was Tony Stark's AI interface. And it's like, you know, make me this, do that, you know, make the coffee, you know, build me a new suit, whatever it was he wanted. And it just, it went from his mind, his desires to, to this physical instantiation. And so we're going to see that with AI. Uh, we're beginning to see it now. There are a lot of companies working on creating this human to digital world interface. And uh, everything is about to become smart. Everything is going to have AI embedded in it from your couch to your refrigerator to, you know, everything. And so you're going to talk to it. It's going to be gathering data constantly. And life's about to fundamentally change. But in the end of the day, if I want to create something, right, we're, we're seeing this now, not just from uh, typing and seeing a paragraph created by, by ChatGPT or Bard, we're also typing and seeing an image that is in your mind appearing on stable diffusion um, or, uh, you know, on, on any variety of imaging, image uh, generative software. Uh, but that's going to be now if if I wanted to create, you know, something like this, excuse the uh, branding and, and advertisement here or Starbucks. But um, at the end of the day, if I could describe verbally, I'd like something to hold a hot fluid. I'd like it to be made of recyclable paper. I would like it to make sure there's enough thermal insulation. Uh, I'd like it to have the, if I can describe what I want, um, you can imagine you know, if you had a pair of Vision Pro, you know, Generation 5 goggles, you're seeing it there as the AI is rendering it in front of you. So yeah, that's it, that's it. How much does that cost? 10 cents, can you make it, can you make it less than five cents by swapping out materials? Sure, um, okay, that's it. Would you please print me 10,000, right? And would you please put the design up on the global interweb so anybody could use it, right? This this agility of creativity is about to explode on the world in the genomics world, in the physical world, in the software world, everywhere. And it's going to be amazing. Wow. And then enter in some type of Neuralink. I mean, that just... Yeah, so let's talk about that. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about that, right? Uh, we are all limited by our input and output, how fast we can speak, how fast we can type, how fast we can read, how fast we can listen. And that's a limitation, it's a, it's a roadblock for us humans. We're also limited by the number of neurons in our brain, right? We have 100 billion neurons, 100 trillion synaptic connections. And we can't get more easily because if your brain grew larger, uh, the birth canal would kill your mom. Um, and so we're landlocked in our skull. Uh, and the, the neocortex has all these folds on it when you see a brain in an attempt to increase the surface area, but it's maxed out. So there's a great analogy of what do we do. So, you know, pulling out the cell phone again, our cell phone, when you ask it to do something complicated, like to translate something or analyze an image or whatever you're trying to do, it doesn't happen on the phone. The data is collected by the phone and then the data is sent over 5G to the edge of the cloud. And the analysis 
gets done at the edge of the cloud, and then the answer gets sent back. So imagine a world in which we want to understand, you know, Schrodinger's equations. We want to understand quantum physics. We want to understand, you know, asking a question you would normally Google. Instead of having to look it up and memor and or having memorized it and recall it, instead the question gets posed, the question gets sent from your brain out to the cloud, and then the answer comes back and oh, okay, I understand now, right? That that moment when you remember a person's name or you remember an answer. Imagine if that was intuitively for everything. So can that happen? Well, I, we've mentioned Ray Kurzweil a couple of times. Ray uh, is an incredible futurist and probably one of the best predictors about uh, accuracy of when things are going to happen. Again, while he was predicting human-level AI by 2029, the rest of the world was laughing and saying, no, it's never going to happen or it's 50 or 100 years away. Well, it looks like Ray is right. Um, another thing he's been predicting is that we'll have high bandwidth brain computer interface by roughly 2033. Uh, and it looks like he's going to be right again. Now, there's Neuralink, uh, there's uh, Paradromics, uh, there's a, a company by Mary Lee Jepson called Open Water. There's probably 20 strong commercial companies, and probably every government military is working on this. I mean, what happens if you could increase the intelligence of your citizenry? Right? It's probably the most important thing you could do for a company or a nation state is to increase the IQ and capabilities of, of your you know, human carbon life forms. Um, so we're going to see BCI. Um, it is coming. There's plenty of, of money going into it. It's going to be under the guise first of helping people who are paraplegics and quadriplegics or locked-in syndrome. Um, but it doesn't stop there. And, uh, you know, we'll see it this decade. And it will disrupt the information speed limit we have in connecting with the universe out there. Um, and where does it go from there? Are we uploading ourselves? Uh, well, maybe a different conversation. So if AI wasn't uh, exciting enough or disrupting enough, we've got this new uh, interface on top of that and the longevity too happening. Uh, <laughs> let's get into the book because there's a lot of people listening that they always want to be more competitive. They always want to build their business, but you're telling them that unless they become an EXO, an exponential organization, you're not going to have any chance and you're going to need to surf this wave with all these changes happening. I don't know if you want to start with massive transformational purposes, but I have a little story of my own. 12 years ago, Please. I was in the banking world and I had moved to London. And uh, as you know, from MIT, I got a mechanical engineering degree. I got seduced and recruited by Wall Street. And before I knew it, I was pricing uh, fixed income derivatives and off I went. Made it to London, got into the credit derivatives business, but Peter, it wasn't fulfilling me. And at the time I was dragging myself to work in the banking world and I definitely didn't have a massive transformational purpose. I barely had a purpose. And so luckily I took a meditation course. I realized where I was and I quit and I started London Real. And if you ever come to the studio here in London, there's a wall here right next to me. And it says, our mission is to create a mass scale transformation of humanity into a fully empowered, conscious and cooperative species. And so everything I do here from this broadcast 
to everything I teach in my academy, to even our investments or our documentary films are all for that purpose. And, you know, it completely changed me as a person and it allowed this place to survive going on 12 years now through some times where it was definitely slowly growing. Um, and so I, I see what you're saying, how a purpose alone, not the resources, not the connections, a bit like we were saying about Gandhi, not these other little details that every business school will say makes the success. It's like this, this something you can't put your finger on that keeps this founder or organization drilled into what they want and they want something specific and it's gotta be this way that gives them that success. And so I don't know where you wanna dive in here, but how, how can we best show those people watching or listening how they can find that MTP or the build the EXO? Sure. So yeah, let's begin. So an MTP, a massive transformative purpose uh, is something that I, you know, I, I invest in hundreds of companies over the years and I advise probably actively 20 entrepreneurs and their startups and then, you know, three, four, 500 people through, through A through 60. And my requirement is find your MTP, find your massive transformative purpose in a world where we have a massive abundance of opportunities, lots of stuff hitting you every single day. How do you focus? What do you decide to do and not do? Um, well, your MTP is your guide there. Um, because if you do everything, you're going to fail. Uh, and if you're not clear how to measure whether something is additive to your mission, your purpose, your vision, then you're going to fail. You know, Martine Rothblatt, uh, I don't know, do you know Martine's work? She's the CEO of United Therapeutics. She's incredible, um, has done eight amazing moonshots. One shared a phrase with me, which I've never forgotten. I've written about it, which is uh, the, you know, a successful individual um, says no to most things. The most successful individuals say no to everything. Um, and it's that hyper-focus. Now, listen, I am guilty of not doing hyper-focus. I have, unfortunately, the more is better disease. I don't commend it to anybody. It really minimizes, it makes it tough. Um, but uh, if you can be hyper-focused, so my MTP, my massive transformative purpose, is to inspire and guide entrepreneurs to create a hopeful, compelling, and abundant future for humanity. So everything I do in running as chairman of the XPRIZE Foundation and executive founder of Singularity University and Abundance360, and all my companies are focused on supporting entrepreneurs, guiding them, and inspiring them to create a hopeful, compelling, and abundant future. It's the frame, the filter through which I run any opportunity with. And if it helps me there, awesome, I'm on it. If not, I'm passing it off and saying thank you, but no thank you. So uh, that's critically important. I also view an MTP as a canvas upon which you take your moonshots. So an MTP is an emotional energy. It has to really um, wake you up and keep you going. And by the way, you can change your MTP during the course of your life. Uh, my first massive transformative purpose was to uh, make human a multiplanetary species. Um, I had it phrased differently around a private commercial space flight uh, and really, and that gave birth to a number of my companies, my you know, SED, Students for Exploration Development of Space, International Space University, Microsat, my launch company, um, it gave birth to the XPRIZE Foundation, 
but that that fuel of awe like i love star trek and apollo and i want it and and so that drove me um and that was really the first you know post-college or in college and onwards the first 20 years of my life and then my mtp shifted to focusing on grand challenges as the x prize diversified as singularity diversified um, and then really focused from there on the entrepreneur because i realized the entrepreneur is the engine by which we change the world he or she is the mechanism for driving breakthroughs, reinventing the future, and so serving them. And I still hold that MTP in my heart, and where I've been increasingly bringing another MTP into birth will be is focused in the longevity space. Um, once you have that MTP, and it's again a canvas, an emotional canvas. It can be positive emotions like awe and excitement. It can be negative emotions like I refuse to let this hardship go on any further on this planet. I'm going to crush it, kill it, destroy it, right? Um, but it needs that emotional energy because doing anything big and bold in the world is hard work. And if you don't have that emotional energy to keep going, you'll give up before you get there. Um, so once you have that MTP driven by emotion uh, as a canvas, I'm then like, okay, what are your moonshots? And your moonshot is a very clear numeric target that you proclaim to the world, even then you don't know how to do it. But, you know, for me, examples of my moonshots, the X prize, the original X prize, I'm going to create a $10 million competition for the first team who can build a private spaceship, carry three adults up a hundred kilometers land and do it again within two weeks, the same ship, right? So people can be very clear whether or not they achieved that moonshot, whether I achieved that moonshot, was it a $10 million prize? Um, did the winner, you know, have the capability to bring three people to 100 kilometers twice in two weeks. And as hard as it was, and I failed over and over and over again until it succeeded, we pulled it off and I hit that moonshot. Um, and so, you know, I think getting a clear MTP and, and identifying what your moonshot, what's going to wake you up, what your focus, what your target, right? Without a target, you'll miss it every time. So what is your clear target? Is, is really important. I mean, folks who want to play with this, um, you can go to, uh, uh, I think it's um, Moonshot Planner. Let me check while we're on here. I, I wrote up uh, a entire generative AI uh, enabled, uh, yeah, moon, uh, moonshotplanner.com. And moonshotplanner.com is a place where it'll help you uh, actually design your MTP and design your moonshot it's totally free um, um, the only thing if you want to use it uses gpt 3.5 if you want to use gpt 4 there's a, a cost just to cover that cost but my goal is getting people to develop their mtps and their moonshots so once you've got that then you're at the beginning of building your exponential organization right and then when you go in to build that you identify, I think, 11 characteristics, and some of them are very interesting, like staff on demand, obviously using AI and algorithms. You talk about things like community and crowd. What are some of the, the ones that maybe people won't realize they must have to build that EXO? Yeah, so, you know, what Sling and I did was we looked at some of the most successful exponential organizations, the ones that came out of nowhere and had massive disproportionate growth. Um, and how did they do it? What attributes did they have? 
They all had an MTP, uh, but they all used some aspect of all of these. And let's let's pick on the few that you just mentioned, and then you can pick a few more. So community and crowd. Um, the ability to build a community around yourself that is uh you're able to leverage that is effectively becoming your marketing organization is becoming your idea organization. You know, in Uber, there's a community of drivers who are your, you know, you don't pay them unless they're generating revenue for them or yourself. Everyone with the app is a member of your community. And once that community is in place, you're then able to start building on top of it for Uber Eats and other Uber products. Um, you know, Apple has a community, uh, everybody with a phone who's, who's queuing up in line to get, you know, Apple, you know, iPhone 27 or whatever is coming out next. Um, uh, we have Wikipedia uh, with a massive community of individuals who are working for free to maintain the site and, and filter the site. Uh, you know, at the XPRIZE Foundation, we have a large community of innovators. When we launch a, we just launched a $10 million uh X prize, $11 million X prize on wildfire detection and extinction. And so we have hundreds of teams registering for that. Those teams and the members uh, working in them are members of the X prize community. But I don't pay those teams. Um, I don't organize those teams. There are self-organized communities out there that are going after these competitions. So community is everybody who you have a direct connection, one or second degree connection with. The crowd is everybody else out there, 8 billion individuals. And how do you tap into those individuals, right? And you tap into the crowd through uh, competitions, through media, through um, all sorts of ways, but to get the crowd to become members of your community. And then at the core, um, of your community are your employees. But one of the things that's interesting in this world where things are changing so rapidly, your employees that you have today might not be the right employees that you need a month from now or a year from now. So one of the concepts is the idea of staff on demand. Um, and staff on demand would have never been possible uh, 20 or 30 years ago. But today, because of the agility of global connectivity and the ability to work from anywhere and the ability for someone you've never met to display with such confidence and clarity their capabilities to you that you say, yes, you're the right person, right? It's their, uh, it's their GitHub, um, it's, their, uh, you know, it's, it's their coding abilities, it's their marketing abilities, it's their reputation score, and so I have people who I have never met physically, but I meet them on Zoom once a week, who are core members of my team. Uh, and the staff on demand issue is the ability to aggregate the right people at the right time to do what you need to do. Now, interestingly enough, this is the way Hollywood has worked for the last hundred years. When a film got made, you basically staffed it on demand with the, uh, the grips and the movie people and the staff writers and all of that, they would come together, create the movie, and then dissipate and go to the next thing. But so when you have disruptions like the pandemic, staff on demand uh, helps a company survive through that. It may not be the most stable thing for 
individuals, but we're now living in a world where the workforce is globalized, where if I live in LA, I can be working for a company in, in London or in Hong Kong. Um, I just need to adjust my sleeping hours, perhaps. Um, AI is obvious. I think uh, we've said about this that AI is core to every EXO understanding. And I'll, I'll mention one other thing in the AI world. So when I'm when I'm um, in the boardroom of companies, I'm advising or or uh, uh, entrepreneurs I'm mentoring. It's like, listen, if you're not an AI first company, I understand that, and that's okay. But at a minimum what you need to do as the CEO, as the leader, is identify and bring in a chief AI officer. What do I mean by that? It's someone who isn't coding or building you a large language model per se, but it's someone who understands who's out there. What's the uh, topology look like? Uh, what is, who are the major players out there in the world? And who should you be focused on? Because we're seeing thousands of startups right now per month getting funded. Uh, and it's just this incredibly, uh, you know, frothy, fervent, uh, creative period. So how do you decide? I mean, you can't be reading all of it, but you need someone who's, who's surfing that tsunami and cherry picking what's right for your company, for your team and bringing it in. And so I call that person the chief AI officer. They're like a uh, strategic advisor to the CEO in the field of AI. And anybody listening should be trying to incorporate AI into every aspect of their business at this point. Yeah, I mean, I just did. Um, so the my team called PhD Ventures, which are my initials. Um, uh, it's like what Richard Branson has with his Virgin Management Group, right? So I have a, I have a team of, 14, 15 people that work with me across all my companies and um, they implement uh, Abundance 364, being Abundance Platinum and other programs that I, I run. And uh, I want to empower them. So what did we do? We took four days and uh, a friend of mine, Mike Koenigs, who's brilliant in the AI field, uh, said, let's do a content party. And so we got together, we had like three uh, generative AI experts in one giant conference room and we hacked for four days. There are people there who had some experience, other people who had no experience and it's just forcing people to play, to be curious. And we said, okay, what are the 10 most important things? Everybody think about it right now that if you could generate right now would be incredibly valuable for you. All the content for a new website, a new, um, a new, uh, content for books or whatever it might be. Um, all right, let's do that using generative AI in the next four days. And so it's a way of forcing people to learn and accelerating them, but you've got to take the time, right? And it's, uh, it's you have to revert back to the curious young girl or boy and not be afraid to play. Yeah, and make mistakes. So you like force yourself into a hackathon you would normally never enter and then let it play out because we're all because we're all too busy. Everybody's yeah. too busy doing everything. I, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm like uh, I, literally, I'm up at six every morning and going till nine or ten, and I've got every microsecond planned out. I mean, literally every microsecond planned out, and I force myself to get eight hours of sleep because that's important to me. And so, 
when do you make the time to do that? So we did. We scheduled it. I do what's on my schedule. I have one of the most amazing AIs in the planet in the carbon life form. Esther is my chief of staff. And it's like, Esther, you run my life. If it's on my schedule, I'm going to do it. So, um, you know, be careful with that power. <laughs> um, a couple of weeks ago, I had a guy named Jamie Birkin here who runs Outlier Ventures. And they're an accelerator here in London. And by, by nature of that, one of the biggest investors in, in these Web3 startups. And he said something that blew my mind. He said, Brian, I've seen the first single person, single founder, billion dollar company because they have the idea and we hand them a, a tech stack of, of 10 different AI protocols. And for the first time in history, he said, I see potentially one person building a unicorn where in the past that would be almost unheard of. Um, yeah. I know you've talked about some similar things that you've seen, just your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I what I wrote about in EXO2 and blogged about is a three-person billion-dollar startup. Uh, I met one at MIT uh, this week in the AI field. Um, and it doesn't take much. Uh, and, of course, they don't stay a three-person team once they're, they've got it because, you know, humans are, are still the best AGI form we have. But the ability for a three-person team to get up, get going, get a billion-dollar valuation um, and run. Uh, and it's good. It could become easier and easier. Now, the question is what happens when that, when that gets so every day um, that it flattens out? I mean, we're going to have some interesting periods of uh, hyperinflation, hyperdeflation, and I don't want to go into economics if I had... If I had an extra lifetime, I'd write a few economics books, but I don't, and that's not my area of expertise. But, you know, we're heading towards a world of, of post-capitalism in one sense. You know, what happens when everything is effectively free, when we have nanotechnology and infinite energy and the cost of anything is its raw material cost, and robotics make accessing the raw materials easier. So, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it's it's fascinating. I know you had a dear friend of mine on the show, Eric Poulier, um, who's uh, one of the smartest thinkers in the metaverse space, right? He was the first person to recognize the ability to go between the physical universe and the digital universe and to have, um, have uh, a, a product's ID on blockchain connected where if I'm, and he didn't name it as an NFT, but he created the first NFTs and minted the first NFTs and definitely created the software around it. And, you know, he was like saying, okay, I'm going to be in a virtual world. I'm going to see a virtual cup of, of coffee on the desk there put up by Starbucks. I'm going to grab it, put it into my wallet. And then when I'm in the real world, I can take that unique identified blockchain coffee and transfer it and get a physical cup of coffee. Right and and have the ability to go back and forth and uh, that is most definitely coming and in the virtual world a lot of it's going to be um, you know very hyper intelligent NPCs where you know if I want to go educate myself in the in the virtual world on a Vatim platform as I enter in that virtual world there is a NPC version of Socrates over there that everything ever written about Socrates, ever known about Socrates is is in the AI model I'm now speaking to. And so I can have a conversation and learn about his, his thinking 
um, in a way that would never be possible in any written book. Yeah, I had an amazing conversation with Eric and yeah, his company Vadim's incredible. We're investors through London Real Ventures and when we saw their demo of the metaverses, uh, I'm telling you, Peter, it was everything that I kind of, the blockchain world was telling me was gonna happen that hadn't happened yet. And when I looked at some of the projects they did for Google and Frito-Lay and Pepsi and amazing how, you know, people forget we're all in metaverses anyways. I mean, right now we're in a bit of a metaverse here. We've never actually met, but we're having yeah. these relationships and what they built out of Adam is, is an incredible look into what could happen. And you're alluding to that education space and um, there's there's so much possibilities. I know you're on the board of that company too. and it's, it's, it's gonna be exciting to see how Eric takes that to the next level. And, and like you said, how we are all going to these virtual worlds now AI powered, where we have the most incredible learning experiences, educational experiences, social experiences ever. And that's yeah. an, another part of the future. Um, and you talk about meta trends a lot, and we've covered a few. And I'm wondering if there's any others that you kind of wanna put you know, uh, on our minds, you've talked. Uh, I'll, I'll, yeah, sure. Uh, let's talk about humanoid robots. Um, you know, we've been in the science fiction world promised for ages flying cars and humanoid robots, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, they're finally kind of here. Um, you know, uh, the flying cars, technically electric vertical takeoff or landing EV tolls. There's a dozen companies uh, producing them. Uh, I just bought one called uh, Jetson One. Um, which is a single person, more like a uh, uh, a single single person runabout uh, that for fun. All right, it's 100k. Uh, they're in starting production now. Um, but places like Joby um, uh, and uh, uh, Beta and a few others that are very real, going through all FA approvals that will uh, take you. You know, point to point at 150, 200 miles per hour, you know, a couple hundred kilometers per hour, will will change how we get places, uh, and that's cool. But what's really cool is the humanoid robot world. Um, and what does that mean? Well, we now have the ability to begin to create robots that functionally look and operate like humans. Uh, five fingers, two legs, bipeds, and why would you do that? Because our physical world around us was built for us, right? With doorknobs and stairs and gas pedals and all of those things. So the easiest way to replace labor, or in one case, augment labor, because labor is getting harder uh, to get access to, is build robots that can do what humans can do. And at the end of the day, what is making this possible isn't better motors and, and better materials, so those are here as well, but it's going to be this AI revolution. Um, it's going to power, it's going to provide a physical instantiation for AI in these in these robots that will be able to, uh, you can talk to it, have it understand what you want, and have it go off and do it with a high degree of certainty. And we're going to see a very steep part of the curve here. So, you know, probably the best known one is Optimus by Tesla. You know, Elon is, wants to produce these for, you know, 20K or less. Um, and, you know, if you were to go and lease a $20,000 car, I mean, you're paying, what, a couple hundred bucks a month, right? So imagine paying a couple hundred bucks a month to have your own personalized humanoid butler uh, or maid. 
mowing the grass and doing the dishes and doing whatever you need to do that is getting smarter and smarter every day. Why not? Because the physical hardware is upgrading, but because the software is upgrading all the time. It's learning new tasks, learning new skills, learning how to evaluate the image, how to learn how to be more delicate with things. Um, and just like, you know, my mo- I have a Model S and a Model X Tesla, as those cars are getting uploads all the time, I'm still waiting for my uh, full self-driving mode. Don't have that yet, uh, but we'll get there. And so Humanoid Robots is a company I invested in called Figure um, that is uh, looks to be one of the top robotic Humanoid Robot companies, but there are going to be dozens of these companies. And so we will see millions, tens of millions of robots, Humanoid Robots by 2030, maybe a billion plus by 2040. Man, Wow. I guess this is this new reality that our children are going to grow up where it's just normal to have humanoid robots walking down the street and surrounding you. And that's just normal. Do you remember the first time you saw somebody with Bluetooth earphones on a cell phone walking down the street, just talking to themselves? And you're like, that looks so weird, right? It looks like, who is that person? Uh, And then the next time you saw just, you know, four people, a family of four at a dinner table with their phones out looking like this. Like, that is so weird. Now, you know, now these things are normal. Yes, they're gonna be weird in the very beginning and then they're gonna be fully accepted. You know, here in Santa Monica, we've got these uh, little six-wheeled uh, delivery robots that are delivering uh, you know, six packs of Coke or uh, you know, sandwiches from the local foods. You know, so they're traveling all over there. I think they're called cocoa robots. They're traveling all over the streets here. And the first time everybody's like photographing them. And then now it's like, get out of my way for God's sakes. No. So they're fully autonomous vehicles that are just doing deliveries and coming back? They're, they're, they're doing deliveries and coming back and they're autonomous for most of it, but there's a human interface when it gets into some kind of trouble. But there's no human inside of it. No, it's about the size of a uh, small uh, uh, cooler. Yeah. Okay, we haven't seen those in London. I'll, I'll probably take a picture first time. Um, you mentioned uh, the end of capitalism. And without going too deep into it, I, I am kind of curious, what do you see in the future? I've heard a few AI people recently saying, not sure if uh, money will even be around in the future. Um, what will that the economy look like? And then what will humans try to amass as capital? Will it be your mindset? Will it be your creativity? Will it be your personality? Yeah, what will that look like? Uh-huh. So we, we have another three hours to dive into this. <laughs> uh, so let me, let, me, let me tease people. First of all, there's a, a fascinating book called Zero Marginal Society by Jeremy Rifkin uh, that dives into this very well. Uh, but let me, you know, we humans grew up selling scarcity. Um, I owned this apple orchard or this olive orchard and I owned all the olives on it and I would... Uh, meter them out and sell them a bushel at a time, what the case might be, that scarcity. Um, a consulting firm gets a whole bunch of intelligent people and you sell it by the hour, by the engagement. Um, that's the scarcity model, right? An abundance model um, is you're effectively giving away things for free. In a scarce mindset, if you have uh, a apple pie and twice as many people show up, 
uh, in a scarce mindset, you have to you have to slice the pie into thinner and thinner slices for everybody. In an abundance model, no, it's going to bake more pies, right? So we have the ability to create as much of what we need uh, to meet the needs. Um, where are we going? Uh, Eric Drexler in the in 1986 wrote a book called Engines of Creation, in which he talked about something called nanotechnology and the idea that everything in our physical universe is made up by atoms and we're going to reach a point in technological evolution where we can grab individual atoms of carbon here and oxygen here and nitrogen there and assemble what we want and build things. We have this in, in today in the form of an oak tree right if you take the seed for an oak tree and plant it in the ground it's a it's a uh, nano machine that brings together water and nutrients and it slowly over a century will build a mighty oak but um and just think about that right it's the information set inside that little oak seed that creates that mighty oak but imagine now instead if i have the ability to create a nano assembler, um, microscopic, much smaller than a human cell. And I drop one into my hand and I say, okay, listen, copy yourself, grab some atoms from my, from my hand, kill a few cells. That's fine. And make one for, for Brian and make one for, uh, for Brian's team. Um, and each of you get one. And now you have a nano assembler and, uh, you're able to drop it in the soil and say, please build me an electric Ferrari and I'd like a mansion. Now, that assembler has to get access to materials, information, and energy. That's all it needs. Well, energy, we're heading towards a, a squandrel abundance of energy, again, from solar, but more from fusion. Um, and then materials are pretty much massively abundant. They're just not in a purified form yet. And what we really spend a lot of time and energy doing is purifying things. Uh, to purify the atoms of titanium or aluminum or carbon to make diamond. Um, and so assemblers can do that on their own. So the material costs are really just raw, the hunks and hunks. You might, it might say, can you please feed me some more titanium? I need it. Uh, and then the information is probably going to be open source information. So all of a sudden the cost of things, material things start to move towards zero. So what does that economic world look like? Is that a post-capitalist world? What do we still have as value? Maybe it's compute cycles that are valuable. I mean, these are the things we have to think about and understand. And I might have said you have to think about those things, you know, 30 years from now or 25 years from now. I now think we have to think about these things this decade, the next 10 years. Uh, as, a, as my third book was titled, The Future is Faster Than You Think. Um, but I still think it's the most extraordinary time ever to be alive. Uh, you just need to be constantly educating yourself. Uh, and I think, uh, Brian, through your work and the work I do, that's what we're constantly doing. That's what makes it fun. Yeah, so much fun. So exciting. A little dangerous, but I guess that's why it's exciting. Um, just curious, you get to hang out with people like Elon Musk and Ray Kurzweil and Jeff Bezos. Like, what makes those guys different? Uh... Elon is, first of all, is brilliant. Uh, let's be very clear. The guy is a rock star and he's extraordinarily smart. 
the way he thinks, right? It's, it's all about mindset. Um, you know, that's why, you know, when I talk about uh, mindset mastering, that it's mastering and, and, and building a mindset. And you can train your mind. You can train yourself. So your mindset, when you see an opportunity, how you handle it is your mindset. You see a threat, how you handle it is your mindset. Um, Elon does a lot of uh, what he calls first principle thinking. Um, I wrote about um, Jeff and Elon and, and Branson and Larry Page um, in my second book, Bold, How to Go Big, Create Wealth and, and Impact the World, and sort of dissected their mindsets uh, in that book. But, zero, but first principle thinking is when he was looking at creating Tesla, uh, he had to convince himself that you could get the battery costs down um, and the energy density sufficiently there, and he did. And when he was building SpaceX, um, there's a long story there, and I, I tell it in a couple of different books, um, he had to convince himself that you could build reusable rockets. And, and he did from first principle thinking, from basic physics, right? And then he taught himself that and then don't mistake it it's not like he's employing all the smartest people in the world he is one of the smartest people in the world and he did the fundamentals himself and unlike every other rocket designer he's gone or you know an order or two magnitude uh better than they have and it's extraordinary and I, you know i've been in the space business so i'm a reasonably good judge at being blown away by what he's accomplished yeah it's all impressive um your latest book, Exponential Organizations 2.0, the new playbook for 10X growth and impact. It's incredible. Uh, people can get that now. What is the best way for people to follow you, social, your websites, and what else can we expect coming next from you? Yeah, so I have a, a podcast called Moonshots and Mindsets, and it's really focused on uh, two things, AI and longevity, and interviewing the top people, but really the thinking there. Uh, Diamandis.com is where you can sign up for my twice a week blog. Uh, and I've got a blog sequence right now on all the attributes of an exponential organization. Um, I have three books in production right now, so expect more there. Uh, but, you know, Abundance 360, if you're a uh, successful entrepreneur, CEO, trying to figure out your MTP, your moonshots, and want to learn more about that and find a community of people who are thinking really big, uh, you can go to uh, abundance360.com, one word, and learn more about it there. But I think I want to just I want to have people be optimistic about the future. Uh, we humans have been the most extraordinary problem solvers ever. Uh, we're still here. <laughs> we have solved so many problems over the years, and the tools. We're really good at seeing the problems far away. We accelerate them to today. We freak out. But then we still have time with all the new technologies to solve them, and we do. Uh, and I have confidence that we will. And I have confidence that we have the ability to uplift every man, woman, and child on this planet and create this incredible world of abundance. So I really hope people walk away uh, from this conversation, Brian, empowered about the future and knowing that, you know, if they've got their MTP, if they've got their moonshots, uh, that they can make a real dent in the universe. Yeah, me too. I am... I am still massively optimistic. I'm excited to be here. I know there's gonna be some challenges, but also that's what makes life interesting and that's what creates great leaders. 
people that can really be there and help solve challenges. So uh, thank you, Peter. Really appreciate this. I've been a fan for years and years and um, I love having an excuse to go even deeper on your IP. Next time, let's do this in person, either in London or Santa Monica or Boston or something like that. And uh, until, yeah. until then, thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, Carl. Appreciate you. All right. Thanks so much. We'll see you all next time on London Real.